Children, have you ever heard the expression, be careful who your friends are? You ever heard that? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. It's a, it's a fairly common saying that you, you need to be careful who you associate with, who your friends are, who you spend your time with. Because, as the scriptures tell us, um, through the Apostle Paul quoting someone else, bad company corrupts good morals. Which is to say, if you hang around with shady characters, you're liable to be a shady character yourself. Uh, and and uh, if somebody is doing evil things and lives an evil life, that's liable to drag you down too, to their level, by spending time with and associating and allying yourself with uh, somebody who is not a good influence. So, by the way, that's a little aside here, but that's important for you as you're growing up to be careful who you spend a lot of time with in terms of friends. Be, be careful about your choice of friends. Because you'll be tempted, I know from personal experience when I was younger, a lot younger, uh, you'll be tempted to hang around people you shouldn't hang around. Uh, because they will, be, uh, they will be corrupting influences, that is negative influences on you more than likely, rather than you being a positive influence on them. Uh, it just works that way, generally speaking. It's a general rule. But to the point of uh, related to this text about being careful who your friends are, um, there were influences on the king of Judah. We're going to look at him. Ahaziah, he was also known, by the way, as Jehoahaz. Uh, he had a second name, and oftentimes biblical characters did. He did. Um, we're going to look at Ahaziah, and he hung around with the wrong people. Now, they happen to be extended family members. <laughs> but nonetheless, he hung around with the wrong people. And they uh, had a terrible effect on him. And so too did his uncle, uh, who happened to be the king of Israel up in the north. He too hung around with the wrong people, who happened to be family members, and ended up um, suffering spiritually, morally, every other way, uh, because of his association. So that's part of the point of this account, and so we're going to look at that further here in just a moment, the two major points uh, that I want to call your attention from this account. But before we do, just a little reminder of where we are. We're working our way through Second Chronicles. These are the kings of Judah. Um, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, remember uh, uh, after Solomon's day, uh, Israel, the, the united 12 tribes of Israel broke into two separate halves. Um, they weren't really halves. Ten of the 12 tribes ended up uh, associating together in what became known as the kingdom of Israel in the north. And then two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin, associated with one another and became the kingdom of Judah. But the line of David was preserved in the kingdom of Judah, not in the kingdom of Israel. Technically, the kingdom of Israel were supposed to be under the Jewish king, under the uh, Davidic descendant, I should say. And so all the kings of the northern kingdom were illegitimate rulers. Uh, they were The people of God were supposed to be under a Davidic descendant, not under the uh, charlatans and the uh, usurpers that uh, ruled them in the north. But we'll still call them kings uh, anyway, periodically, but just know they're not real, they were not uh, genuine God-ordained kings of those people. So, at any rate, um, it, Second Chronicles just focuses on the uh, Davidic uh, kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, unlike uh, the kings that focus on both the north and the south. And the chronicler had the kings before him when he was writing. He often incorporates some of the material from uh, First and Second Kings in his writings. But we looked a few weeks back at uh, the um, life of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. He was one of the most godly of the kings to sit on David's throne over the course of the centuries after David's day. He wasn't a perfect man by any means, but he was considered a man who uh, loved the Lord and did right in the sight of the Lord for the most part during his rule. But 
after Jehoshaphat died, his son, Jehoram, uh, who was his successor, uh, took the throne, uh, was crowned king in Judah, and Jehoram was nothing like his pious father, Jehoshaphat, was. He was a um, an evil, vile man. He was the polar opposite, really, of his dad. Profoundly evil king, whose wickedness manifested itself in his decision to slay all of his own brothers shortly after his ascension to the throne, because they represented a threat to him, apparently, in his mind. Also, uh, his, his wickedness was manifested in his choice of a bride, Athaliah, who was the daughter of none other than Ahab and Jezebel, that most wicked duo from the north, um, and he made her his wife uh, for to his undoing as well. Uh, his wickedness was further seen, uh, and God was particularly angered at this, that he built more high places of worship uh, in Judah, high places that uh, God had not approved of his worship places of worship, and that God himself detested because they were not, um, God's people were not worshiping him the, the way and in the place where he wanted them to worship him, which was in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount. Uh, and these were alternate places of worship because people liked to worship God the way they wanted to worship him. And oh, by the way, we'll bring in the other gods as well, was kind of their mindset. The Lord detested these places. And and Ahaziah, while there were some of them that were in the land, when uh, when Jehoram uh, assumed his uh, kingship, he made more of them. Uh, and God hated that. And as a result of that decision and his own um, very evil and immoral ways, he uh, we learn that he caused his subjects also to, the phrases, play the harlot uh, toward God or against God as a result of his own public, very public and flagrant displays of covenant infidelity uh, himself, including the building of those high places. By the way, that is Jehoram of Judah that I'm talking about. We're going to look at uh, Jehoram of Israel, of the northern kingdom, in a moment. But Jehoram of the north is often called, not always, but often called Joram. It's a shortened version of Jehoram. And I'm going to call the northern king Joram, hopefully without being inconsistent, and the southern king, who I'm not going to really mention in this uh, because we're already past him, Ahaziah's dad, is that's Jehoram. But the northern king, who is sometimes called Jehoram, even in this text, I'm going to call Joram because it's he's regularly called Joram uh, in the Second Kings, and um, and once or twice he's called Joram here in this account. So we're going to call him Joram to just distinguish him from Jehoram of the of the south, uh, Jehoshaphat's son. Well, after uh, by the way, Jehoshaphat's son Jehoram, um, the chronicler points out uh, just to put a exclamation point on how wicked he was in uh, chapter 21, the last chapter, verse 20, that when he died, quote, he, depart, he departed with no one's regret. Everybody was happy he was dead, in other words. Regardless of who you were, you were happy Jehoram was dead and rotting in the ground. Not a nice guy. Well, we read about his successor in the first verse of our uh, chapter that we're looking at today, chapter 22, uh, we read about his ascension to the throne. His name is Ahaziah, or as you, if you look up to verse 17 in the previous chapter, he's also known as Jehoahaz. I'm going to call him Ahaziah for the rest of this sermon. Uh, but we read there in verse 1 of his ascension to the throne, then the inhabitants of Jerusalem, this is after the death of Jehoram, then the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, the youngest son, king in his place. For the band of uh, men, who were, by the way, Philistines and Arabs, we learn up above, uh, for the band of men who came with the Arabs to the camp had slain all the older sons. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. <clears throat> this leads me to the two points that I want to uh, call to your attention in the remainder of our time together. First point from the text is we're going to look at the familial influence that incited two kings to act wickedly. 
And then we're going to look at the divine response to the decision by two kings to act wickedly. First, the familial influence that incited two kings or provoked or prompted, any word you care to use there, two kings to act wickedly, a king of the south and a king of the north. The first of all, the familial influence or the family that I'm talking about, referring to, of course, is the family of the kingdom of the of Israel's notorious Ahab and Jezebel. That's the family that we're referring to. Those two and their descendants. Um, Ahab and Jezebel were amongst the most wicked of all, uh, or Ahab was, Jezebel was a queen, not a king, but they were amongst the most wicked of all of the northern kingdom's royalty, as you all know. Uh, Jezebel was every bit as evil and depraved as her, as her, uh, sorry husband was. Uh, uh, Ahab was the king who, with his wife's prompting, surprise, uh, listening to his wife there, uh, to induce him to evil, introduced Baal worship. That, that wasn't a strike against wives, by the way. I'm sorry. That was, that wasn't, that came out wrong. But she, I hope you get my point. She was somebody who was not to be listened to or married by, married to, by the way. But that's, you know, he made his bed. Um, anyway, he introduced Baal worship, uh, and mass to the northern kingdom of Israel. So that became the predominant religion, in effect, in, in Israel, the north. Um, because of Ahab and his promoting of it. He, we are also told by the author of Kings over in 1st Kings chapter 16 verse 33 that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's saying a lot because Jeroboam II was an awfully evil king and was regularly cited by the Lord for his evilness. And yet Ahab apparently was somehow had an, bested him by a notch in terms of the whole evil thing. He was a, a loathsomely idolatrous uh, and evil man who mass-produced equally loathsome, idolatrous, and evil children and grandchildren. This was a horde of wickedness, this family was. And that the children... Uh, included the man who was sitting on Israel's throne, the northern kingdom's throne, during Ahaziah's reign in the south. That is Joram. We're going to call him Joram. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel's son, Joram. And it also included, amongst their children, Joram's nasty and degenerate sister, Athaliah. Quite the pair those siblings were, but there were more. There were others as well. Uh, we just don't uh, hear too much about him. Ahab's household, uh, his relatives, his descendants, had an unholy influence on Judah's king and on Israel's king. First of all, we're going to look at Judah's king, Ahaziah, or Jehoahaz. Uh, The influence from the household of Ahab came principally from Ahaziah's uh, uh, mother, uh, that horrid woman just mentioned, Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. So Ahaziah, in other words, is Ahab and Jezebel's grandson. So uh, part of the family tree there. And her influence, Athaliah's uh, horrible influence on Ahaziah, her son, is aptly summarized in verse 3. We read there in verse 3, uh, he also, I'll start in verse 2, Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri. He was also a very, very, very bad man, by the way. Um, and then we see in verse 3, and he, that is um, ah- uh, Ahaziah, also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab. Why? Why in the house of Ahab? For his mother was his counselor. Athaliah was his counselor to do wickedly. But it wasn't just Athaliah. It was very much Athaliah, yes, who influenced Ahaziah for evil. But there were other members of Ahab's uh, family, other members of his household, who also contributed, if you will, to the poisoning of Ahaziah's moral well. Verse 4, 
reads, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house or household, that could be translated, of Ahab, for they, meaning the household, plural, members of that household, plural, were his counselors, not just mommy, after the death of his father to his destruction. The whole clan, in other words, was a bunch of vile, perverted, idolatrous wretches. And it wasn't just the king of Judah, Ahaziah, upon whom these relatives of Ahab exerted a morally corrosive influence. Oh no. Ahab had an even more direct, in terms of lineage, corrupting influence upon Ahaziah's uncle, and that is King Joram of Israel. And that, of course, makes perfect sense because Ahaziah was removed two generations from Ahab and Jezebel. Joram was removed only one generation. He was the son of that wicked pair. Um, And uh, now, now, to Joram's credit, he was, and we learn this from 2 Kings chapter 3, uh, Ahaziah, excuse me, not Ahaziah, Joram of Israel was not as much a chip off the old block as his sister Athaliah was. She was arguably more wicked than he was. But Joram was sufficiently evil, shall we say, nonetheless. Again, Second Kings 3 makes that point. Uh, and this was... His evil was undoubtedly largely due to the unholy influence of his father and mother, uh, Ahab and Jezebel. And so, both these kings, Ahaziah in the south, Joram in the north, are, are morally poisoned by their association with their family members, ongoing association, and indeed, indeed choosing to have them be their counselors, no less. The queen mother was often... Uh, had the role of being an advisor or counselor to her royal offspring. That was common in the Middle East, and it was common uh, even in, uh, uh, in uh, Israel in this day. And so she, she served as his counselor. Athaliah, rather. I said Jezebel. I meant Athaliah. Uh, served as his counselor. Um, but he made that choice to listen to his mom, who, his moral compass, at least before it was broken entirely, knew She's not a good woman. My mother is not <clears throat> a good woman. At any rate, what can we learn from this? Well, first of all, it's pretty obvious, I think. Family, especially immediate family, and especially our parents, play a disproportionate role in who we turn out to be. Children, Be thankful that you have the parents you have. If you have godly parents. Because an awful lot of kids out there don't. And are going to pay, more than likely going to pay a dear price because of their parents' unholy influence in their lives. You have, if your parents are Christians, have holy influences in your life. You need to be very, very thankful. the impact that our parents and siblings and grandparents even, but the impact that relatives can have upon their descendants, whether good or bad, can very definitely be multi-generational. In fact, I think this is what, uh, uh, I think this is what God, because you have to just compare scripture with scripture, And this is why God says what he says in the second commandment. What he means when he says, um, you shall not worship or serve. This is after you shall not uh, make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Um, This is Exodus 20, verses 4 and following. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. I do not believe, and, and we can't read it this way because of what we read over in Ezekiel, that God punishes um, children or grandchildren for the sins of their parents or grandparents. That's not what this means, otherwise scripture contradicts itself. 
But what it does mean, I, I am convinced, is what's going on there when he says visiting the sins, uh, the iniquities of the Father, meaning the influence of the Father, uh, uh, tends to have ongoing, um, um, uh, ramifications in subsequent gener- generations. The sins of the Father end up, uh, becoming the sins of the children by way of influence. And so, and that influence, that negative influence or positive influence, depending, can be multi-generational. You parents need to hope and pray that your grandkids and great-grandchildren will have the faith that you are trying to pass on to your children so that they might pass it on to their grandchildren and so on, their children and grandchildren. Um, and there's a good chance, chance is the wrong word, there's a good possibility that the Lord will bless your praying to, to that end and your efforts to that end. It's not a guarantee, we, we know that, but it's a uh, strong possibility that the Lord will uh, bless you in that way. But again, also evil in the family can have multi-generational um, negative inf- influences and impact. This means it is exceedingly important that we who are parents parent our children, our growing children, wisely. And even our grown children, wisely. That is to say, and the only wise way to parent is uh, to teach them the fear and the instruction of the Lord and point them to the Lord. First of all, by being good role models ourselves as to how a Christian should speak and think and act. But uh, but also by uh, not just our actions, but also by our words to our children, the way we speak to our children, that our language is grace-filled, uh, but not cheap grace-filled, if, I, if I'm making sense there. Um, not the uh, not the perverted version of grace, which says uh, uh, you can do whatever you want, and God will forgive you. Uh, God forgives the repentant uh, sinner, the repentant covenant child, not the unrepentant one. At any rate, um, another implication of what I've just said is, uh, well, I'm going to pose it in the form of a question. Does Ahaziah's and Joram's examples, does that, that examples of how it, uh, how they were poisoned by Ahab and Jezebel and Athaliah's influence, does that, those examples mean that we are doomed to follow in the footsteps of our less than godly parents that raised some of us? No. You are not, um, you are not predestined, uh, to evil just if you, because you had a prof, uh, an ungodly parent or parents. That is not the case. Because then, the, again, it would be punishing the children and grandchildren for the sins of the father. No. But, um, there are, and, and by the way, there are many of us who probably know individuals who turned out much better spiritually and morally speaking than their parents. And by the way, there are biblical examples of this happening too. Two of them are um, Hezekiah and Josiah came from bad stock, shall we say. So, there are exceptions to the rule, uh, but they are exceptions to the rule. Family, negative um, influence from family, especially close family, is hard to overcome. But God, by God's grace, it can be overcome. Second point, so we've seen the uh, familial influence that incited two kings uh, to act wickedly. But secondly, this text speaks of the divine response to the decision of these two kings to act wickedly. And obviously the Lord responded with uh, righteous anger. Um, as 
all flagrant and habitual practice of sin elicits from God that response, righteous anger. Now, there's a sense in which men who are placed in positions of authority and uh, like the kings of Judah or like the prophets or like pastors and elders, there's some sense in which we are called to a higher level of consistency in, um, in holiness, not perfection, by the way, don't ever put us on that pedestal, but um, then, uh, then perhaps uh, younger, less mature Christians. But God is angered when his children, uh, who are in covenant with him, uh, break covenant by flagrant sin against him. Um, there are many places that we could umteen passages uh, to make this point. I'll just use Psalm 106, but you could use Psalm 78 that we were in earlier today, verses uh, 78, 54 through 59. You can maybe read that later, but Psalm 106 is the one I'm going to read to you now. It's Psalm 106, 34 to 40, and we read there, Starting in verse 34, Psalm 106, they, and this is of course Israel, he's recounting Israel's experience, uh, um, and he says, they did not destroy the peoples, meaning of the land, the Canaanites, as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons, notice uh, when you're sacrificing to idols, you're sacrificing to demons. Uh, and shed innocent blood, blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. And then we read in verse 40, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against, notice, his people, and he abhorred his inheritance. Now let me clarify what's going on here. Remember we've talked about the church is composed, there's the church visible and the church invisible. The church visible is composed of all those who profess the Lord as their God through Christ. But there are covenant, there are wheat in the, ch- in the church and there are tares in the church. Hopefully there are not many tares in this church, but we do our best. But uh, they're the covenant, uh, the wheat, those are the covenant keepers. Those are the ones that are trusting the Lord Jesus as Savior and Lord of their lives. Uh, and then there are the covenant breakers, who are those who are in covenant outwardly, externally, but not in their hearts, who are breaking covenant because they have not bowed the knee to Christ and trusted him as Savior and Lord of their life. And God is angry when with that portion of his visible church, Israel was the visible church of the Old Testament, uh, most of them were in this situation. Most of the people of that day were only giving lip service to Yahweh, but were serving other gods or their own lusts. And God was angry with his people, his covenant-breaking people of old, with, of course, exceptions amongst of those who believed in, in the in the uh, country, in the nation. God gets angry at sin, folks. And we know from um, that God must punish all sin. We don't know this from Exodus 34. I'll read that well-known passage to you. This is after the sin of Israel in the, uh, with the golden calf. And we read there in, uh, I'll start in verse, oh wait a minute, no, I'm sorry, this is not, this is a little bit later, this isn't the golden calf, this is a little bit later. Um, well no, it's shortly after, it is. So we, we read starting in verse uh, 5 of Exodus 34, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, that is Moses, 
as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. But here's the part that I want to call your attention to. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And here's that phrase again, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the grandchildren of the third and fourth generations. And I already told you what I think that means. God always punishes sin, and he is perfectly just in punishing sin. He must, if he's perfectly just, punish all sin, especially flagrant violations of his covenant. And folks, either the guilty sinner himself will get this punishment that God must exact, or the divinely appointed Redeemer of God's elect will. Those are the only two options for you and me. Either you get what you deserved, or, Je- or what you deserve, or Jesus does. We've all sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all going to go to hell. And deservedly so, unless, and that's the place of, of where, that, where that punishment for our sin is meted out for all eternity, or we trust Jesus to take our hell for us. And there's a very real sense in which that is God's choice, but there's also a very real sense in which that is your choice. It is both, actually. I'm not going to get into that, but it is both. In Ahaziah's and Joram's cases, they themselves would personally experience the judicial wrath of this, uh, 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 of God in both this life and the next. So, God providentially arranged to have both of these two men suffer a violent death and then to be sped on to hell where they would suffer the torments of God's wrath for eternity. But God did this. So look with me at verse 7 of our text. Clear as a bell. Now the destruction of Ahaziah, so we'll deal with the king of the south first, of Judah first. Now the destruction of Ahaziah was, here it is, from God. In that, in other words, God arranged it, that he, Ahaziah, went to Joram. There's, by the way, there it says Joram, not Jehoram. For when he came, he went out with, and now it changes it from Joram to Jehoram. That's just kind of interesting in the same sentence, uh, in the same verse it does that. Uh, Then he went out, uh, when he came, he went out with Jehoram against Jehu, the son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had appointed to cut off the household, that's better pronounced household of Ahab. I'll get to Joram in a minute. But Ahaziah. So notice Ahaziah's demise was from God. So too was the death of Joram, king of Israel, as is evidenced by the fact that the Lord was intent on destroying all of Abraham's household, all of Abraham's descendants, regardless of which kingdom they occupied, they were all going to go, because they were all wretched reprobates. And so God arranged, at his timing, to have these two men put to death. And this not only included um, Ahab's grandson Ahaziah, uh, the son of Athaliah, but also Ahab's immediate son, Ahaziah's uncle, Joram, king of Israel. So how did, he, how did the Lord choose to eradicate these two uh, reprobate kings? Well, God often, if not always, doesn't always do this, but he often, usually, I would say, does this. He usually uses creaturely instruments, which I usually refer to as means, but I chose chosen to describe them as creaturely, that is, created instruments to accomplish his purposes. Sometimes those instruments are non-living, like a bolt of lightning. 
If he wants to take somebody out with a bolt of lightning, it doesn't involve anything living. It just involves some electricity that the Lord happens to produce in the cloud above. I'm talking about judgment now. There are other means that he uses uh, to show his kindness, but lightning is not one of them. Uh, but he also uses living uh, creaturely instruments like human beings to accomplish his to accomplish his holy ends. And on this particular occasion, the Lord decided, decides to use a man named Jehu, who was in uh, Joram's army. He was an official or a, a, a commander, whatever captain, whatever in Joram's army up in the north. Uh, and he selects him, the Lord does, to bring about the demise of both Ahaziah and Joram himself. And he, inc- he incites, or indicates rather, indicates his choice of Jehu as the executioner of his wrath upon these men through the prophet Elijah. I'm going to read an extended section from Second Kings. You might want to turn with me there. Second Kings chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Uh, the chronicler leaves out a lot that the kings, the writer of Kings includes here. That's why I'm going to read this extended section because I want you to see uh, kind of the background here. He just he just mentions it. The chronicler does, but the king goes into more, uh, the king's writer goes into more detail. So Second Kings nine, I'll read through verse ten of chapter nine, and this is how the Lord uh, taps Ahaziah. Excuse me, uh, Elisha, who then taps one of the sons of the prophets. I'm not sure why he did that, but anyway. He tells Elijah. Now Elijah the son, excuse me. Now Elijah the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets, and said to him, one of the sons of the prophets, "Gird your, gird up your loins and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to remote, remote Gilead. When you arrive there, search out Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, a different Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and bid him arise from his." among his brothers, and bring him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over uh, Israel. So the Lord was anointing Jehu to be the next king after he got rid of Joram. Then open the door and flee and do what you want. Uh, and do not wait, rather. Not do what you want. Do not wait. Uh, so the young man, this son of the prophets, uh, the servant of the prophet, went to remote Gilead. When he came, behold, the captains of the army were sitting, and he said, I have a word for you, O captain. So Jehu was a captain. And Jehu said, For which one of us? And he said, For you, O captain. And he arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you, king, over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. Notice the people of the north are still the people of Israel. Covenant-breaking but they're still the people of, of, of the Lord. They're in Israel. Um, verse 7, And you shall strike the house, meaning you, Jehu, shall strike the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. Notice, Ahab's responsible for Jezebel's behavior. Take note, husbands. Verse 8, For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male person, both bond and free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. So, that's how he... uh, raised Jehu up, and the the way he providentially orchestrated the death of Joram at the hand of Jehu was that he prompted Joram, uh, the son of Ahab, to take up arms against his near neighbor to the east, uh, the Aramaeans, who were the king of Aramea, was uh, uh, Hazael. And so Joram goes into battle and when with Hazael's forces, and he is seriously wounded by uh, one of the one of the one of his opponents there at a place called Ramah, which is also called Remote Gilead in the text. They, uh, and this is a different Remote Gilead than the more commonly mentioned Remote Gilead. But at any rate, Ramah is the other name for it, and that's where the, his injury is incurred. And so, following this near fatal run-in with Hazael's forces, Joram 
returns to this place called Jezreel, which is in the northern kingdom, to recover from his injuries. Jezreel, by the way, was the place of the summer palaces of the kings of Israel. They would go there in the summer uh, uh, to, the, to Jezreel, uh, where a palace uh, was that they would uh, use. And, of course, he was one of the kings of the north. And uh, Jezreel is where Jehu tracks down Joram. Uh, over in 2 Kings 9 again, but a little bit further on than where we read, I'll start reading in verse 14 through 16 of 2 Kings 9. Verse 14, So Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat the son of Nimshi conspired against Joram. Now Joram with all Israel was defending remote Gilead against Hazael king of Aram. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to be healed of the wounds which the Arameans had inflicted on him when he fought with Hazael, king of Aram. So Jehu said, If this is your mind, then let no one escape or leave the city to go tell it in Jezreel. Then Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram was lying there. I'll stop there. So he tracks him down in Jezreel, Jehu does. And Joram hears of Jehu's coming, and he decides to go out to meet Jehu. Uh, presumably he was still injured, but he was, you know, his men got him up and whatever, and took him out to meet him as he's approaching the city. He takes him out there, um, and that's when Jehu, or should we say the Lord, through Jehu, puts him to death. And that is in 2 Kings 9, verses 22 through 24, I'll read that also. And it came about when Joram saw Jehu that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? So he was hoping that maybe he was coming in peace. Not the case. And he answered, What peace, so long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many? So Joram reigned about and fled and said to Ahaziah, We'll get to him in a moment, There is treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between his arms, and the arrow went through his heart, and he sank in his chariot. Bye-bye, Joram. But the Lord also arranged for Ahaziah to die at the hands of Jehu as well. How does this happen? Well, by the Lord prompting Ahaziah who was allied with Joram already in a political alliance, to go to visit his uncle Joram after he had been wounded in that battle with the Arameans. And so he goes to Jezreel to visit his uncle, who is recovering there. And at the point, uh, some point after Ahaziah arrives to see his uncle, um, Jehu is seen coming toward Jezreel, uh, Joram is notified, and Ahaziah goes out with Joram, Joram rather, to meet Jehu as he's approaching, as I just read a moment ago. And verse 7 of the Second Chronicles text says that Ahaziah's destruction is from God. God arranged all of this, in other words. Prompted you know, Joram to want to go after the Arameans, uh, caused Joram's injuries, caused Ahaziah to want to go visit Uncle Joram, uh, but not until, uh, uh, but only afterwards does Je- uh, Jehu approach and Ahaziah wants to go out with his uncle to meet Jehu. All that was God's hand. Shouldn't surprise any of you Presbyterians here. But it's the case, and the text makes the point, uh, succinctly, but makes the point. And he didn't just incite Jehu to kill Ahaziah, which he did. Um, did I read that already? No, we haven't. Oh, that, that comes a little bit later. Oh, it comes in verse 27. Yeah. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, this is First uh, King, Second Kings 9 again. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the way of the garden house, and Jehu pursued him and said, "Shoot him too in the chariot." So they shot him, at, you know, at Jehu's order at the ascent of Gur, uh, which is at Iblaim, uh, Ibliam, 
but he fled to Megiddo and died there. Another one down. But also, he didn't just kill Ahaziah, Jehu didn't, but he also killed Ahaziah's nephews. We read that in verse 8 of our text, Second uh, Chronicles 22, verse 8. And it came about when Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab, so he's the whole house of Ahab, when he's executing judgment on the house of Ahab, he found the princes of Judah, so of a, uh, related to Ahaziah, and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers, who were the princes themselves, ministering to Ahaziah. And what did he do? Killed them all. Slew them. So what do we learn from this in conclusion? Well, first of all, it's pretty evident God hates sin, right? Especially sin amongst those who profess his name. Covenant breaking is worse than being outside of the covenant and being a lifelong heathen. Because you give lip service, listen children, you give lip service to God, but you don't love God and you don't trust Jesus in your heart as your Savior and Lord. That's covenant breaking. And that is a worse crime, if you will, in the eyes of God than never having darkened the doors of a church, knowing nothing about Jesus, and just living a life of self-love and sin, and then dying. You children are blessed to be in a covenant household and to be in a church that preaches the gospel. And you are more obligated than your non-Christian friends are who don't go to church to trust God and serve him. And if you don't, children, God is you have more you have more to answer for in the day of judgment. Don't make the mistake of turning away from the God of your parents. If you've not trusted Christ already, children, trust him today to be your savior and your lord, because he won't be savior unless he's lord of your life and serve him for the rest of your life. So God hates sin. Secondly, we can learn from this text that God sovereignly ordains the destruction of the reprobate and is perfectly just in doing so because everyone he condemns and punishes deserves his wrath. Every one of us deserves his wrath. So if he ordains, and he does, the destruction of those who deserve his wrath, who don't trust Christ, whom he has not elected to do so and given a new heart to do so, he is perfectly just in doing so. We can never say, that's not fair. Those people uh, in India or, in, or um, Tibet who have never heard about it, it's not fair. It is fair. They're sinners. They know they're sinners. They have a moral compass. Um, and they know the law of God, at least initially, before they seared their hearts, if they, if they later in life do that. But they know that they've offended their maker. And they're obliged to go find a way to be reconciled to him, to find Christ. And they didn't. And they're held accountable for that. And we could just as easily be in their place, but by God's grace, we're not. And it's only by God's grace that you're not and that I'm not. And thirdly, finally, we can learn from this text that, because it's implied here, because this is a precursor to the day of judgment, what, what uh, Ahaziah and, uh, and Joram experience. It's a precursor to the day of judgment, when all wrongs will be righted. You and I need to draw comfort, and I do mean the word comfort, from the fact that all wrongs and injustices in this world will one day, sooner or later, receive a just recompense. That is, will be properly 
punished by a holy God. And that includes people who have wronged you personally and have not repented of their sins and trusted Christ. You shouldn't wish that upon them. We are to love our enemies. And we are to pray for our enemies, that the Lord will bring them to Christ if they're, uncri- if they're non-Christian enemies. Hopefully you don't have too many Christian enemies. But at any rate, we are not to wish their destruction, but know that they will receive that destruction one day in the day of judgment, and then God's people will rejoice in the meeting out of God's justice on that day to all those who receive it, who haven't received his grace. And that should be a cause of comfort to you as you look at this horribly unjust world that we live in and see all the shenanigans that we see in in, uh, Hollywood and Washington and Moscow and Pyongyang and everywhere. Whatever, just open the paper. It's just, it's sickening. God's going to take care of all of it one day. And we should rejoice in that. God rejoices in his, the meeting out of his justice as well as the meeting out of his grace. He rejoices in the meeting out of his justice and we have every right to rejoice in what God rejoices in. Not our personal enemies, but in general, yes, the meeting out of justice, we can rejoice in that. But we are in the meantime to pray for grace for anybody that is our personal enemy. And even we can pray for the salvation of dictators like uh, Kim Jong-un. I sometimes pray for uh, his mercy, uh, that God would have mercy on him. And But I also pray that if, as you have been here, uh, that the Lord will destroy him if he's not intent on saving him. And get rid of him. Wipe him off the planet. Replace him with somebody more civilized. Both things are appropriate. And finally, if you're here and you've never trusted Christ savingly, you need Christ. Come to Christ. Get rid of your foolish pride and come to Christ by faith and faith alone, trusting in him alone to save you. He will, but only when you come humbly and sincerely to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for its